What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. All right. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I am absolutely thrilled that you are here. If you have never checked out the Billy D's podcast before, just to let you know, we're primarily an interview and a commentary podcast. You can find the Billy D's podcast pretty much anywhere podcasts are found, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Listen with Friends over at Good Pods. The list goes on and on and on. You can find us just about anywhere. Anyway, on the studio line with us today is Kit O'Malley. Kit, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Kit is one of the guests that I, I, I kind of like to have because she's an author. And I'm going to talk a little bit about her book. And she also has a, a cause and a personal journey. And this has to do with mental health. So I really like there's a there's a lot to sink your teeth in here when you're talking to a guest like this, because the personal journey aspect of this is really, really a strong uh, tie in. So thank you for sharing your story, Kit. That, that, that I'm sure that's an inspiration to a lot of people. Well, thank you. Kit O'Malley is the author of Balancing Act. Writing Through a Bipolar Life. She is also a mental health advocate, public speaker, and a former psychotherapist who lives with bipolar disorder. Her personal experience and clinical background inform her advocacy and enable her to help herself and guide others toward mental health recovery. And that's kind of and a very important uh, theme when you're talking about this, that recovery is possible. It may not be what you thought recovery might be, but there is a way to live with these conditions and manage them. Is that a good way to put it, Kit? That is precisely right. It, you might not be what you originally thought, but it, it, you can live a purposeful, meaningful life. Ab ab absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about you to give the audience a little bit of background on you. Where are you from? Um, well, right now I'm living in um, Central Oregon. Okay. But to say where I'm from is difficult because I moved a lot. Okay. I moved a lot as right. a kid. As a kid. What was your childhood like? Did you have a lot of brothers and sisters? Were you an active child? Or? I have one sister um, and uh, we uh, went back and forth coast to coast and lived overseas for five years. My sister was born in Saudi Arabia. We lived there for five years. Wow. Um, yeah. So my youth was pretty interesting. <laughs> I guess so. Well, you cer certainly seem well traveled, and yes. uh, you know that's a good thing. Well, one of the reasons, as a kid, as a kid, yes, as a kid, I was well traveled. Well traveled. Um, one of the reasons why I was kind of asking you a little bit about your background and what your childhood was like is I'm always curious how these things that you went through with bipolar and and other things, when did they started to? When did you start to notice? 
something isn't right. I mean, was it because like, I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of different people. Sometimes it's in grade school. Sometimes it's in high school. When did you start to, to realize that some of the things that you were going through were just a little out of the norm? Actually, it wasn't until I was 18. Okay. Um, because I was a very high achiever. I was, you know, um, so I just was seen as a high achiever, um, you know, type A personality, I guess you'd say. Um, and then when I was 18, I was an honors biochem student at UCLA and I was suicidal. Oh. So I knew that wasn't good. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's when it started. It started being um, severely, severely depressed, um, believing that the world would be better off without me. My family would be better off without me. And um, luckily I got help. I knew there was something wrong. Um, I knew it wasn't good. I knew I wanted to live in yeah. spite of wanting to die. You know what I mean? There was yeah. parts, there was a part of me that was very strong that was like, no, get help. Um, and so I did get help and, um, I did at UCLA, I did some cognitive behavioral therapy, which is like rewriting your thoughts. Yeah. And that helped me develop a coping skill I carry with me to today. Um, and so that's, that's how my journey began. I wasn't diagnosed bipolar actually until I was 39. So it wow. took a couple of decades. Yeah. Well, I'm very curious as to how you realized that something was wrong other than what you kind of briefly described. And I'll tell you why. A lot of people that I have talked to uh, going through those things and recognizing that this is abnormal is not always so easy. It's kind of like being in a bad dream. Sometimes you know you're in a bad dream and other times you don't. Um, how were you able to, I guess, be objective and look into yourself and say, you know what, I shouldn't be feeling like this. I need help. Because that's an important thing. A lot of people resist getting help. So how, how did you manage to piece that together? Um, well, at the time, I was pretty literate about medicine. I was a pre-med. And, and I no. trained to be a peer health counselor and I worked at the emergency room. So I sat with people who were suicidal. So I knew a lot about m m suicidality, Okay, you know, so I was familiar with that in terms of, you know, just intellectually. Sure. And in high school, I did a lot of volunteering in hospitals. So I knew I, part of me was able to like separate from the part of me that was symptomatic and observe myself and observe that, oh no, this time I'm not just thinking it, I'm actually yeah. planning to do it. And so that part of me that was able to separate from myself and observe it is the part of me that acted um, and got help. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about what bipolar is because a lot of people don't understand it. I think the, the, the BI prefix leads a lot of people to believe that it's multiple personality disorder. Um, but what exactly is bipolar disorder? Um, bipolar disorder used to be called manic depression. And okay. quite honestly, I think manic depression is a better description of it because it's, it's plain language. People sort of understand what mania is and they understand what depression is. So depression, something almost everybody understands. It's not just a feeling of sadness. It's like, it's, it's something that interferes with your life for two or more weeks. So it's a more okay. serious than the feeling of sadness. Mania is when you, it can be a variety of things in terms of behavior, but it's when you're super elevated. So you may have racing thoughts, mm -hmm. pressured racing speech, grandiose ideas, mm -hmm. um, 
religiosity that's a little bit this maybe a a bit too much or a bit bizarre um and um and then there's a a spectrum in between the two Mm -hmm. where you can have what's called hypomania where it's just a little bit you know like maybe you're just a little bit more than Mm -hmm. your average person in terms of your up and what's called dysthymia i actually was diagnosed after that major depressive episode Mm -hmm. i actually was diagnosed dysthymic which is chronic moderate low you know depression Mm -hmm. throughout my 20s and 30s in spite of the fact that at 30 i had uh, a manic episode um i had at 30 i was i i i went i coped with the depression throughout my 20s uh, with psychotherapy. And okay. I actually became a psychotherapist when I was in my 20s. Um, you know, I switched from biochem to legal studies and then went to grad school in psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, um, I worked with very challenging population, um, severely emotionally disturbed adolescents in residential and day treatment. Okay. And uh, I had this year when I was 30 where my grandmother died a friend died of AIDS and I was of that age where it was the, the midst of the AIDS epidemic right. and I lived in the San Francisco Bay area and I had oh, a lot wow. of friends. It was really a tough time. Um, and when you were in the helping profession, there were, I had a lot of friends who were in the helping profession who were struggling with that. Sure. So those things happened. And then, and then a client of mine um, threatened to rape me during session and I just could not, he was 16 years old, over six feet tall. You know, mm. I, I, I got out of the room, but, but I, at, I just couldn't bring myself to go back to work. And I remember I called my parents. I was living in the Bay Area. They lived in Southern California. And I called my parents and I said, um, I, I can't even get out of bed. I can't go back. I can't do it. And yeah. they said, Kit, why don't, they said, Kit, why don't you try medication mm-hmm. and see if that helps? And so I went to my doctor and she put me on um, medication and I had started having a side effect to the first antidepressant. So she put me on a sedating antidepressant to counteract the side effect. And that was okay. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was sleepy, but that was okay. And then my parents said, well, since you're having side effects, why don't you see a psychiatrist for a second opinion? Psychiatrist took me off of both of those medications and put me on uh, an old school tricyclic, which happened to trigger mania in me. Mm. And as it turns out, people with bipolar disorder, that's like a diagnostic criteria. If they become manic when they put on antidepressants, chances are they're bipolar. Interesting. Okay. But at that time, I was, well, I'll explain the manic episode and then I'll explain why they didn't diagnose me as bipolar afterwards. So I was full-blown psychotic manic. For a week, I didn't sleep. I was thinking simultaneously in binary, which is ones and zeros just going through my brain. So I thought, gee, too bad I'm not a computer. I'd be able to understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> About chaos theory, which is physics and mathematics. Right. And that was above my pay grade too. And about the Christian mystic saints, which I actually hadn't ident- identified with. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, because of other another experience I had had in the past. Um, because I felt called by God. So, but, mm-hmm. but I had this ambivalence about what's this call mean because I'm not churched. And here I have this mental health history with the mm-hmm. depression before this mania. And I thought this could be just craziness. So anyway, mental illness. Mm-hmm. Craziness. So I, um, 
what ended up happening was uh, I had a friend who called my priest and said, um, Kit needs help right now. Mm-hmm. And he brought a bipolar seminarian and the two of them came over right away, right after they got off the phone with my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had me call the psychiatrist and I explained what was going on to the psychiatrist. I said, well, I haven't done any harm because I knew that I, mean, I was a therapist. So I knew, I mean, I wasn't practicing as a therapist sure. then, but I knew, um, you know, the diagnostic criteria for mania. And I said, I haven't done any harm. I haven't spent any money. I haven't, you know, right. all these different things that people sometimes do. Um, I said, you know, but I have, you know, I explained the symptoms. So he uh, prescribed medications and um, to antipsychotics to just bring me down for three days that stopped it. Um, and my dad flew up. My friend called my dad. My dad flew up and then my mom and they tried to help me like put my life back together mm-hmm. and, and like get, I continued seeing that psychiatrist and just tried to go more carefully on that antidepressant, but I wasn't my brain after a severe episode like that, it injures the brain okay. and I wasn't even able to read. So I was falling asleep driving, which is mm-hmm. not good. No. And then when I would get to the job, I wasn't able to read. So I really wasn't mm-hmm. even I didn't, people couldn't see this, but the words and this letters and a word would fly apart and the words in a sentence would fly apart. I couldn't pull them together enough right. to be able to read them. It was interesting because I was able to do database work. Like that part of my brain worked, but the language part didn't. Yeah, the language part didn't. Huh. So, so I go, okay, I can't read this user manual with the latest version of Word. So I better go over to that database, which I know how to use. Um, so, yeah, so I just, I just talked to my parents and I said, I just am not able to do this. I can't pull myself together. So I moved back in with my parents for a few months. And during that time, I went to a new psychiatrist and therapist and they put me on a different medication. The psychiatrist asked if I'd ever been, if anybody had ever recommended that I be on lithium. And I said, no, but if you think I'm bipolar, you know, if you, if you think I have bipolar disorder, I will take lithium. He said, no, actually, I think this is what we call iatrogenic, which means it's caused by the medication. Mm. He said, given your history, this is what we think. And I even told him the history of, I had this one episode after my grandfather died, where I was going over the Bay Bridge. This preceded the mania. And I felt like it was when I was an undergraduate, like an energy was going, pushing out pushing out an energy and I was a clean energy was going in me that's mm-hmm. all the experience was and and but I was worried because I was driving it's like can I change lanes can I you know yeah. I was, you know you don't want to stop in the middle of a bridge um so but I had ambivalence about that because I didn't know if that had to do with my depression if it was a symptom of mental illness sure. but for but I thought it was um somehow spiritual in nature hmm. So, and I told the psychiatrist this and he said, no, he said, well, did you use any drugs back then? And I said, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I went to Berkeley. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a lot, but yeah. And, um, and so he said, no, no, we, we think it sounds like you were pretty functional. We think mm-hmm. that, you know, if you, if you were able to do all these different things and um, we don't think that you were bipolar. Um, back then, bipolar two wasn't in the DSM, although the full blown mania is definitely bipolar one. Sure. 
Um, so they, he kept me on antidepressants, just very carefully titrated me up. Whenever my thoughts would start to go fast, I would call and say, okay, every other day, you know, very mm-hmm. carefully titrated me up. And I was on antidepressants throughout my 30s until I was 39 and I was a mother of a toddler and I was breastfeeding him. So it was, you could call this postpartum bipolar if you want. And then I started to feel these symptoms that God was calling me to one church for spiritual direction and to another church for Bible study. And although my behavior was fine, there's nothing wrong with going to spiritual direction or Bible study, but but that euphoric feeling I recognized as being manic in nature. Mm, Interesting. And yeah, I knew just from my experience and my knowledge, I knew that's that euphoria is not a normal feeling. And so I called the advice nurse and I had on, on, the insur- on my insurance and I had my husband get on the phone and I explained what was going on. And she said, go to an emergency room right now or see a psychiatrist today. And I wasn't able to see, go in to see a psychiatrist that day. Mm-hmm. I went in on the Monday following, it's a Friday. I went on the Monday following and I got in to see my, my regular doctor and said, can you give me, you know, like a mood stabilizer to get me through the weekend? And, um, and so that's what she did. She said, you have to promise to see a psychiatrist. I said, I know (laughs) I'm seeing one one Monday. Um, and so from then on, I was diagnosed bipolar. She diagnosed me bipolar too, but a few years later, a couple of years later, I, uh, was hospitalized. And if you're hospitalized, basically considered one, because it means your symptoms were that severe. Right. Interesting. So. One of the things that um, I want to get into, because I know that one of the things we're going to talk about is you're so much more than your bipolar diagnosis. And leading into that, what I want to lead into that with is that a lot of times, this is something that I bring up a lot when we talk about mental health, is stigma. And um, especially with bipolar, a lot of people uh, get nervous and they hear that someone has been diagnosed with that. Uh, People are afraid of getting the diagnosis. Uh, People are afraid of uh, uh, having any type of an issue when it regards mental health because they feel it's a sign of weakness or how other people are going to consider them. So um, when I ask you, you know, you're so much more than your bipolar diagnosis, which I'm going to put words in your mouth. I presume that means you don't want to be identified as that. Um, what, what, uh, what can you say about stigma? And that's cause that really gets in the way of people seeking help. Yes. Actually, what's interesting is I had internalized stigma. And I think that's one reason why a lot of people with bipolar disorder are diagnosed depressed for so long before they're diagnosed bipolar. So we don't share the parts, you know, our bipolar, our, our, symptoms with our therapist. We just share the depressive symptoms with our therapist. And I even told people, you know, I'm a little bit more productive than most people. I'm probably at the very least what you'd call a cyclothymic, um, which is a lower, like a bipolar three, you know, as as I said, it's a spectrum, Mm -hmm. you know, so one being the most severe and three being the least severe. It's all a spectrum. And, um, but what happened is this internalized stigma of mine uh, was when I was diagnosed, when my diagnosis changed at the age of 39 from depressed to bipolar, mm-hmm. I, I thought that I was no longer going to be a good mom. Mm. My, 
ideas about bipolar, which were partly from being a clinician, a therapist of kids with bipolar, was that my son was no longer safe in my mm. care. And I put him in daycare and I went back to work. Mm. But I wasn't able to maintain that. It was just too many different demands on me to be in a demanding career, a mother of somebody who turned out to be a high needs kid and to to live with bipolar disorder. So I just fell apart after a couple of years and I ended up having myself uh, voluntarily hospitalized at about 42 years old. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually haven't worked outside the home since then. Mm-hmm. I um I mean I have worked. I basically work every day, but I haven't worked for pay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so I basically what I do is I volunteer mm-hmm. and I do my mental health advocacy and I wrote a book. Um and I raised a son. Mm-hmm. Um and so and in fact I kind of reframed it all as whether or not this is true. I reframed it. Oh and I actually even attended seminary. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't finish seminary, but I have attended seminary and I got a lot of positive feedback there. And when I attended seminary, it became clear that I had a calling to a mental health ministry. And that's what I consider what I do now, that this okay. is my purpose. So it's a way of sort of whether or not it's something that God's calling me to. It's a way of, to me, it's if, if I were to speak in secular terms, it's a way of reframing my experience and meaning and making it meaningful and purposeful. Yeah. That's got to me sounds very much like a coping strategy. And that's something that you talk about a lot. Um, Tell us a little bit about coping strategies and what that kind of means and what you can do. Coping strategies can be different for every person. So for one person, meditation might be a positive coping strategy for another person writing. And I did obviously use writing as a coping strategy. Uh, exercise mm-hmm. can be a coping strategy. There's multiple things you can do. It's basically practicing good mental health. Right. So these practices are whether or not you have a mental health disorder or a mental health diagnosis, using positive coping strategies rather than negative coping strategies. Absolutely. Are, is good mental health. Like a negative coping strategy, obviously, would be excess drinking. Sure. Yep. So it's it's just a sort of living a mentally healthy life, taking care of yourself. Um, you're, I'm, I, I'm, I can improve. I could exercise more. So, mm-hmm. well, yeah, you're not the There's, only one. We all have. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, coping strategies, when they're unhealthy, like you mentioned, the drinking, that can compound your problems. You can end up with an addiction and and just really end up in a bad situation there. And uh, I'm sure you know that mental health issues and uh, addictions often intersect. Those two things are often uh, what we call co-occurring conditions. Um, Correct. Acceptance, you know, that's something that you have been able to do extraordinary well. And I I know that you've had training. Um, But acceptance, and that's, you know, this also applies to addiction. You know, we mentioned it. Knowing that you have a problem and accepting the problem is key to moving forward. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I actually feel that acceptance is an ongoing process and that it's an ongoing spiritual process. Mm -hmm. And for me, and I like the uh, metaphor of, I don't know if people are familiar with Kintsuki pottery. It's a Japanese pottery where they break the pot. 
and then they put it back together with gold seams. Okay. And that the put back together pots even more beautiful. So before I saw myself is, or before I accepted that I'm imperfect, when I used to be a perfectionist, the overachiever perfectionist, mm-hmm. I wasn't even necessarily as likable okay. <laughs> as I might be now. Because with acceptance comes some humility. It, and it and it comes with um, insight, and I think more than anything else, it comes with self love mm-hmm. that you love yourself for as you, as you are. Yes, that you don't have to be perfect. That it's okay. That you have this brokenness, and it's I'm saying brokenness in a very positive way. Sure, that sure. we are all human. You know that you are. It's okay that you are human. Um, and that, and that it's that for me, because I used to be such a perfectionist and have self-hatred anytime I wasn't perfect right? and probably put people off. Well, I know I did. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> well, we all, all, you're not alone there either. <laughs> and so having come through the other side of that and being able to listen to feedback, you know, if I make a mistake, Mm -hmm. accept it and apologize. And to, you know, even as a parent, apologize, you know, or definitely as a parent, not just even as a parent. I think it's really important as a parent to be appropriately, you know, apologize. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, you know, you're still in charge when your kid's a little kid, but as, as, as they get older and older to engage in a conversation with them and to listen to them. Sure. so, um, yeah. You mentioned uh, a lot of when it comes to uh, good mental health, that a lot of the things that you should be doing in a positive way, you should be doing regardless whether you have bipolar or not. And I noticed that one of the things that you talk about is finding purpose in life's challenges and triumphs. I mean, that to me is such an overriding principle for, you know, a, a good perspective for good mental health, uh, regardless of how mentally healthy you think you are. Is that, a, is that a good way to put that? I think so, totally. And I think a lot goes back to the serenity prayer, right? I mm. mean, you, there are things you can't control and that may, you know, I can consider this, oh, this happened to me, bipolar disorder, and I'm a victim of it, or I, or I can change my attitude about it mm-hmm. and make, make my, make it a purposeful thing in my life, a meaningful thing in my life and do something positive with what I've learned from having bipolar disorder, help yeah. others. Yes. And actually it's part of the whole mental health recovery is at a certain point in your recovery, you come to a point where you're ready to do advocacy. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're doing. One of the things that, um, uh, you know, families who may be dealing with someone who is going through something like this, and this applies to so many things, whether it's an illness of some kind, uh, a physical element of some kind, and you are a, uh, a caregiver. Uh, I know that you always want to talk about the importance of self-care when caring for others. And you know, I was a, a caregiver a number of years ago when my mom was critically ill. Now she has since passed away. My wife went through something recently with her father. And that can be uh, so physically and emotionally draining. Um, it it uh, 
it, it, it's called compassion fatigue in, you know, in terms of uh, ambulance people and things like that. Uh, but, it, but, it, but you can get it. And um, would, would you like to talk a little bit about that? How important it is to take care of yourself when you're dealing with loved ones who may be going through something like this? And my parents have since passed away and my son has since become an independent young man going yes. to college and living on his own. So yay. Yeah. Um, it, you know, not yay necessarily for my parents passing away, but it was their time. And so yes. it's a, it was, that was a blessing too, actually for them to, to right. pass Understood. when it was their sure. time. So, but um, when you are a caretaker of anyone, whether it's somebody who is sick with something physical, my parents had dementia, which actually is somewhere similar to having bipolar and that they're mm-hmm. both brain disorders or, you know, sure. brains messed up. Um, or a, a high needs child, somebody with ADHD, my son had ADHD, migraines, uh, anxiety, depression. He had a really tough as a kid. Um, you, in order to be a good caregiver, you must take care of yourself. So, and, and this also, I'm speaking to those families of someone with serious mental illness. If you have a loved one who has bipolar disorder, you must take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. My mom was my dad's caregiver until she had a stroke. I think mm-hmm. she had the stroke because she was a caregiver of someone oh, with dementia. Sure. Yeah, that could be. So I, I can sort of understand it because I've seen people who wrote, I, I've, I've seen it happen. Yeah, it's very, very, very wearing and taxing. Um, so take care of yourself. Get res- other resources. Get, gather in the, that community. Gather in those resources to help you. If you are caretaking somebody with a mental health disorder, check out NAMI. NAMI has wonderful family support. They also support peers. I'm a volunteer for NAMI, so I'm big on NAMI. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, you can get support as somebody like me with, with mental health, uh, living with a mental health condition or loving somebody with a mental health condition. Yes. Both of those things are really important. And, ta- and just make sure you take care of yourself, that you give yourself time, that give yourself breaks, that you ask for help from somebody else. You, don't, you cannot do it all. NAMI is a great organization. That's N-A-M-I. And uh, you can Google that up and find local chapters uh, just about everywhere. And even if there's not one close by you, they can probably point you in the right direction. So, yeah, it's it's an absolutely great resource. Um, and that's a great organization. And I've, I've done volunteer work for them as well. They're, they're, I often go on the walk in the fall. Uh, the walk for NAMI Walks, I believe, is what it's called. And, yes. Yeah. So um, what message of hope would you have? Because a lot of people are dealing not only with um, bipolar, but we have an aging population now. A lot of people are helping their parents with dementia and other things. Um, and staying positive can be very difficult. What message of hope would you have for so many people who are dealing with situations like this? Well, in general, in terms of Living with a mental illness or loving somebody. Well, I would, I speaking in terms of living with a mental health condition, I think mm-hmm. there is help. There is hope with help. Mm-hmm. Actually, for all of those things, there is hope with help. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there is, there is hope because there is treatment. There is hope because there are resources out there that can help you, mm-hmm. especially in the United States. We have a lot of great resources. Yes. And there is hope in that there's a community out there to help you. It, don't isolate. Ask for help. 
If you don't get help from the first place you ask, ask somewhere else. So I think there is hope because there's there you're not alone. And I know that everybody says that all the time, but it's true. You're not alone. If we all stood up and said, who knows somebody, you know, with a mental health condition or who loves somebody with dementia, you know, I mean, there's just, it's, it's huge. Those are huge issues. So um, in terms of dementia, there's, um, well, we, we had to, unfortunately in our country, there's not great resources. It's financially expensive. It's really expensive to take care of somebody with dementia. And it's with my, both of my parents had dementia and I had bipolar disorder. So there was no way I could do it single-handedly. Sure. (laughs) So we had to sell my parents' house to pay for it. So I know there are some resources out there for that, but that's a huge growing problem um, that is beyond my solution (laughs) right now. Uh, The only advice uh, that I would say is, uh, don't take it for granted. Uh, you know, if your parents are are aging, but they're relatively healthy, uh, don't sit on your hands. Don't wait uh, to do what I did when you're in an emergency room and a doctor comes out and says, this is bad. To realize I don't have a living will. I don't have this or that or the other thing. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you uh, have those things ready to go. Because uh, once once you get to that crisis point, now everything is 10 times harder. Um, than it was before. The book is called Balancing Act, Writing Through a Bipolar Life and the author, Kit O'Malley. Um, I have some things here. Your website is kitomalley.com. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And the book um, is available on Amazon. And you are on Twitter at Kit O'Malley and uh, Kit O'Malley author on Facebook. Is there anything else that you want to mention in terms of where people can find you? If if you go to my website, you can link me all over the place. And if you just put Kit O'Malley into a Google <laughs> search, web search, you'll find me all over the place. All over the place. Well, that is fantastic. <laughs> KitOmalley.com is the website. The book, Balancing Act, Writing It Through a Bipolar Life. Kit, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Lots of great information. And, you know, uh, I have... Uh, mental health podcasts every once in a while. I learn something new every time and everybody's journey is a little different. You know, you were talking about, I feel alone and uh, people often feel that they feel alone. And we say so often that you're not alone. And uh, you know, a mental health condition or any type of health condition is there's an old saying in show business. It's all been done before. No. And it applies to mental health. It applies to anything. If you think that you're the only person in the world who has ever gone through this, who has ever felt that way, it's probably not the case. It's been done before. Mm-hmm. And um, it, we, I, I, I use this analogy a lot, but if you fall down and hurt your elbow, uh, you're going to go to the emergency room. You know, my fingers don't work. I can't feel my hand. I'm going to go to the emergency room. If you're hurting emotionally, uh, you're going to seek help. It, there's yes. absolutely, there's no reason. We should all mention, also mention too, here in the United States, um, 988 is the number for uh, suicide. So the suicide helpline in the United States now is very easy, 988. Kit, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. It was great talking with you. Thank you, Billy. 
Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for checking out our podcast. And you can find me on Twitter, real easy to find, at Billy D's. And if you search me out just about on any platform, it's either Billy D's or the Billy D's podcast. I don't uh, have different screen names, real easy to find. And again, I, I don't know where you're hearing this podcast today, but in the future, you can always find us just about on any platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, with friends over at Good Pods and many others. Thank you very much for checking out our program today. And we will be talking to you again next week. and host of the self-titled podcast, The Billy D's Podcast. We are primarily an interview and a commentary-based podcast featuring authors and creators talking about their craft, advocates for community issues, and myself and an array of co-hosts discussing current events. There's no partisan ranting and raving going on here, just great content. You can find The Billy D's Podcast on your favorite platform and on Twitter at Billy D's. Thank you, and I hope you listen in.